Well, thank you again for being here, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Jonah, the very end of chapter 2. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 10 today, and we're going to cover the whole chapter, of, or the whole third chapter. And then next week, we're going to conclude this amazing short story that is filled uh, with just amazing truth of how God loves us, loves his people, and is determined to see the lost come to him. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right into Jonah chapter 2. Jesus, again, we are so thankful that we have your word. Lord, as we just sang, your faithfulness, your goodness to us, how great thou art. Lord, how great you are in your consistency. You are perfectly consistent. You are perfectly faithful. And Lord, we want to see that today and how you treat Jonah and how you care about the Ninevites, how you care about us, how you care about Jacksonville and beyond. So Lord, help us to see that. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And what a fascinating story Jonah has been. From the moment God called this prophet, I mean, he worked for God. It was his job to go and tell the message of God to people, but he turned down this assignment. He didn't want to do it because he didn't care about the Ninevites. He didn't care that they, were, that they would die and perish forever in hell, separated from God for all eternity. And so he fled God's command and purpose for his life. He thought that he knew a better way that involved his comfort and what he thought was best for him. His selfishness carried him out of the will of God. And so he ran, he fled, tried to hide from the presence of God. He ends up in a boat on the way to the, at the, that time, what was known as the edge of the earth, probably Spain, crossing the Mediterranean Sea. But God was not finished with Jonah. So he sent the violent storm to make this situation so difficult that the sailors ended up throwing Jonah overboard because Jonah told them to do so. He knew it was his fault that the storm had come, that God had sent that storm so Jonah falls into the Mediterranean Sea, treading water, about to drown. This is probably the end. But again, God is faithful. God is not finished with Jonah. So he has a very large aquatic beast, as the Hebrew word tells us, a very large fish. Well, you take your pick, swallow this man. And so he's inside the belly of this large beast in the water for three days and three nights until something very miraculous happens in Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. So let's start there and we're going to go through this part of the story with some details involved and, and then I want us to look and see what is, what is God doing in Jonah's heart? What's he doing with the Ninevites? Chapter 2 verse 10, here we go. So Jonah has been in this well, right, for two, uh, three days, three nights, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, if you have a weak stomach, you may just want to tune this out for a second, all right? God is merciful to Jonah. He preserves his life and gives him a second chance, as we're about to see, 
to be obedient to the original calling. But before we even get to that, can you even imagine? Now, it's bad enough to think that he was inside the animal for three days and three nights. But now outside the animal, I mean, can you just imagine like what he would, the gook, right? That he would be covered in. I mean, I have little kids and so I know what it's like to clean up vomit. But just let me tell you, whale vomit versus a two-year-old human vomit. I feel like there's probably a difference there. You know what I mean? So he is just gross as gross can be. Perhaps some commentators even say, you know, the acids that are in uh, the whale's stomach to help break down the food may have truly bleached Jonah's skin. So just imagine this. I mean, Jonah himself at this point probably looks like an aquatic beast. You know what I mean? Like he just looks probably really weird and gross because he's covered in all this gook. I don't know if they had ivory soap back then, but I hope he found a way to clean himself up before he encountered anyone else, right? So here's what we see, Jonah 3 Verses 1 through 10, we're going to walk through this. Here's what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, now notice how similar this is to the first time God told Jonah to do this, right? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose And went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So it's kind of like, okay, let's try this again, Jonah, right? Jonah now covered in whale's vomit, hears God's voice again. And this time he thinks, I should probably do what God tells me to do, right? (laughs) I should probably obey him this time. But notice, this is the same command, right? It's the same command as before. At the beginning of this story, what does that show us? God's mission hasn't changed, right? He's still determined to save the people of the great city of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria. It's worth noting that there's still no evidence, though, that Jonah is sorry for what he did. There's nothing that shows us other than him actually obeying God. But again, I mean, who wouldn't? Right? Who wouldn't do this, at least even reluctantly do this, right, at this point? But there's no evidence, right, that he actually wants to go on this mission trip into enemy territory. And let's be clear, it's enemy territory. The Assyrians and the Israelites did not get along. In the ancient world, they battered over borders. They they battled over power. And the Ninevites themselves living in this huge city, three days' journey in breadth, it tells us, the Ninevites themselves were especially wicked people. They were extremely violent. They did horrible, unspeakable things. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not even going to repeat some of the things they, they used to do to their enemies. Terrible things, very evil, very wicked. So now this huge city, God tells this one man to go into that city of those wicked people, full of extreme violence, full of pagan worshipers. They don't believe in the one true God. They worship multiple false gods. I mean, what could go wrong? But this is God's plan. He hasn't given up on Jonah, and he sure hasn't given up on the people of the city of Nineveh. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city. 
going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this is probably the second time that Jonah thought he was going to die, right? First time was when they threw him overboard. The second time is when he's walking in the middle of the city of people who hate him. And he's like, y'all going to hell. That's basically what he's saying. You know what I mean? Like he is just proclaiming to them that they are on their path to God's wrath and destruction. But here, let's not take this lightly. This is probably, by the way, not the only part of the message. You know, we see that and like, man, that's all he said. Uh, Most commentators agree that what we read here is probably a summary of his message. It's not all that he said. Right, so I don't want you to get the wrong story. Right, he's he's probably most likely explaining who God is to them, so that they can turn to Him. Right, but the message—don't miss this: the message God has for this city is a warning. Right, they must turn from their evil ways, or there will be significant, serious consequences for their sin. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh. Look at this. The people of Nineveh believed God. Those people? Those evil, wicked people who would torture their captives? Who didn't care about the rest of humanity? Who only cared about power? Those people believed God. Look at this. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, that's amazing. This is probably not the response that anyone could have predicted. I mean, this is a city-wide revival. It's truly a supernatural act, a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit of God turning souls to him. Showing, confirming Jonah's words in Jonah 2 verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, said this, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And look at that. Even the king repents, right? Even the king repents of his wicked rule and his wicked ways, and he issues a call to prayer and fasting for everybody, from the greatest to the least, showing that they realized what they were doing was evil, it was wrong, And they needed to turn to God and God alone for salvation. Again, it's truly remarkable. A whole city of pagans turning to God. And look what happens, verse 10. 
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Is this possible in today's world? Is it really possible, do you think, in today's world for a whole metropolitan city somewhere in the world to have this kind of revival where God turns the hearts of the people to him in this way? Well, let me say this. With God, we must affirm and believe that all things are possible. Amen? But God doesn't want us to sit back and do nothing or maybe just sit back with our popcorn and watch him do it. That's not the mission or the means he has called us to accomplish this mission. Jesus gave commands to individuals who choose to follow him with their lives to be representatives and witnesses for him to share his message. We call this the great commissioning, right? Jesus himself has commissioned all of his followers to engage in this mission, this rescue mission to save a lost world. So can God change a city? Absolutely. But what is the means he is going to do that by? I think he's told us. Look at this. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus told his disciples, and that includes every single one of you in this room who've committed your life to Christ, go therefore, you go, not just Jonah or a prophet or a preacher or a missionary, all of us go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you in this. I'm not going to let you do it by yourself, but you also don't need to let me try to do it by myself because I want you to join me in this mission, God says. I am with you always to the end of the age. And then he gets, I love in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, this becomes a geographical mission. Look at this. Jesus told his disciples also this. He says, but you will receive power so again, it's not that God's not going to supply us in this mission to seek and save the lost. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's the city they were in. Starting where they were in their own backyard. And then it goes and expands, right? And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, Jesus is saying, Start in your own backyard sharing the good news with the lost in your life and watch it spread around the world. If you take this great command, this great commission of Jesus Christ that he is calling all of us to join in his mission to seek and save the lost, just like the people of Nineveh, what about our city? What about Jacksonville, Florida? I mean, let's get real today. Let's talk about where we live, where we work, where we play, where we spend our time. Jacksonville, Florida, in the United States of America. What does God want to do here? And I know this, that he's called every single one of us as individuals to participate. None of us are called to do nothing. 
None of us are called to just sit on the sidelines while everybody else plays the game. God has put, if God has put his Holy Spirit in your heart, which means he has saved you and brought you to salvation through, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in his name, in his work for you on the cross. If he has done that, then he has exactly called you into the game. He's put you in the game. This is our vision statement here at Kernan. Kernan exists to glorify God by making disciples who worship with authenticity, walk in community, and do what? Witness as we go. As we go out and live our lives, this is it. This is it. This is not just the purpose of Kernan. I got news for you. That's the purpose of our lives. It's the purpose of your life. To go and make disciples amongst the darkness of Jacksonville, Florida, and beyond. And so I think what we see in this short part, this, this chapter, this scene of this story, today in chapter 3, you know what I think we see? I think we see a blueprint. Maybe you're an engineer or you're a construction worker or someone that has to, to look at a blueprint before the plan is executed. And that's exactly what I want us to do today. Let's look at this blueprint for redemption in our city. Redemption in Jacksonville. What's the first thing we have to do? I think the first thing we have to do is to believe in the mission. You got to believe that this is real. You got to believe that this is worth it. You know, when I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I was getting my master's in divinity and going to school and a lot of hard work. So I uh, got married, Christy and I, and I was working a part time job at the Apple store. That's computers, not fruit. All right. Uh, <laughs> In the mall, okay? So big mall there in Louisville, and I was working in the Apple store, so I was selling iPhones and computers and iPads and all that good stuff. And let me be clear, it was a great place to work, learned a lot of great things there, uh, really great structure, great organization, all that good stuff. But let me say this, okay? And some of you probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, so Apple kind of has like a cult following a little bit, all right? And the people who, we'll say, drink the apple juice, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> those people, okay, are, are take it really serious. Like, you can't have any other products besides apple products. Like, those are the only products that matter in the world, okay? And so, as working there, they really tried to, eh, indoctrinate's a strong word, ingrain in our minds that these products, these iPhones and these iPads and these MacBook Pros, that they could change the world. That if the world, if people who came into our store really understood what they possessed in their hands, the technology they had, it would change their lives. Their lives would be so much easier and better to know how to navigate the world using this amazing technology at their fingertips. You hear the religious undertone there? Yeah? That's what, that's what I had to work in, Right? And honestly, there were days where I would go to work and I just didn't really even want to be there because I didn't believe that was true. I lacked enthusiasm on the sales floor with the customers who came in because deep down, I didn't agree that these products would change their lives. But I'm afraid that that's exactly how some of us Christians think about the gospel. 
And maybe it's because we haven't experienced it ourselves. Maybe we haven't experienced the truly transforming grace of Jesus Christ to change our own hearts. And therefore, we don't really believe. We don't really believe in the mission of God because we don't think it's going to change anybody else. And so the people that come into our lives, we lack enthusiasm to share the good news of Jesus with them because deep down we don't believe that it can change them or ourselves. The first time God called Jonah to to participate in his mission to save the people of Nineveh, Jonah didn't want anything to do with that because deep down what? He didn't believe in the mission. He didn't believe in the power. He had given up on anything good ever coming out of the city of Nineveh, but God hadn't. One thing is clear throughout this story. God wants to save sinners. The sailors in the boat, the people of Nineveh, and Jonah himself. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God is on a rescue mission to save people from their sin. And this has been true ever since sin entered the world. But the really amazing thing is that when, some, when someone comes to faith in Jesus and experience the salvation of God in their own lives, they immediately become representatives of Christ in his mission. In other words, when God saves you, he brings you into this grand mission. It becomes your responsibility to reflect God's compassion, his compassion for people. God had compassion for the people of the great city of Nineveh, and he was determined to reach them with this message. Now let me ask you, do you believe that he wants to do that in Jacksonville? And do you believe that he wants to do that through you? Do you believe that God wants to save the people who are on their way to eternity without him that are in your circles of influence, the places you spend your time, in your own home, at your work, at your school, wherever you spend your time, do we really believe that we have the Holy Spirit of God? Jesus promised that he would be the power. It's not you, by the way. You're not the power. It's the Holy Spirit of God working in and through you, through his word, to reach people. That's the power. But do we believe that? Do we believe that God will equip us to join him in this hope for our city? This is where we are. Jacksonville is our mission field. It's where God has placed you for whatever reason. Maybe you moved here for a job. Maybe you were born and raised here. Maybe you've retired here. Whatever the purpose is, This is where God has put you. All the circumstances in your life have led to this. Here you are. Now, do you believe that he's not finished with you, that he has a mission for you? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. If we're looking at a blueprint for redemption in Jacksonville, we gotta believe in the mission. That's the most important, first, number one. Number two, we gotta deliver the message. We have to actually deliver the message. Look at what Jonah or what God told Jonah in verse 2. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You know, some people often quote 
misquote, I believe, St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Now don't, well, hold on, that's a terrible quote. I want to just do that. I want to say that quick before someone amens it or claps, right? Let me say it again. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That's a terrible quote. You do have to use words. And let me say why. Because Wanda read this during worship. Look at this again. In Romans 10, I'm just going to read part of it here. Romans 10, verses 13 and 14, and then verse 17. How can people believe? How can people believe in somebody they've never heard of? How can people believe? He says, Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God designed the message of salvation to be delivered with words. He is the, Jesus is the word, capital W, of God because there is news that needs to be told. A while back, uh, my, wi- uh, my wife and kids and I, our family, we were uh, walking, and her mom too, uh, we were walking uh, downtown Jacksonville and on the north bank there along the water, and there was a ship, like an old-timey replica of um, the Santa Maria or something like that, uh, part, or part. Uh, anyways, there was a boat in the water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so they were anybody could walk onto the ship or whatever and and uh, and so we we went on the ship and we saw the ship and it was really cool. Well, one of the local TV stations was there, and uh, there there really weren't many other people walking around and looking at the ship. So guess who they filmed uh, this for the six o'clock news? It was us. All right. So we got on the news. There we go. So we've been on the local news, News 4 Jacks. Here you go, right? I can't remember which station it was. But here's what I know, right? I recorded it on my DVR because I'm old school and haven't deleted it yet, right? It's been a while, right? And we're probably never going to delete that because we made the news. So all of a sudden, the news is important to us. We care a lot about it. Now here's the thing. You may not care about anything on what's on what's on the six o'clock news. But if the news is about you, well, that changes things. The gospel is news. It's literally what the word means. It's good news. And it is about all of us. It's about every human who's ever lived. It's news about the very condition of our souls and standing before God. So that means there's good news. There's also bad news. Now, normally, when we say, listen, I've got good news and bad news, which one do you want to hear first, right? Well, in this case, we have to hear the bad news first. Jonah's message to the people of Nineveh did not leave out the bad news. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, look at this. What did he say? He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's very bad news. In other words, God's wrath, God's judgment was going to be poured out on them for their own sin. So that's fair. That's not exactly the type of message that will make everyone like you, but it's the message that people needed to hear. It's an offensive message, isn't it? Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they've done something bad. But just like the gospel of Jesus 
if we're going to understand and welcome and appreciate our need for grace and salvation, you must first acknowledge your sin and separation from God, or else it's not good news. There's a very interesting, interesting quote I came across I want to share with you in one of the books I was reading this week. Anybody watch Penn and Teller, The Magicians? Yeah? Well, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, the famous magician, he is an atheist. And, you know, when, when we think about sharing the gospel with our friends, it's, it's very, it's socially awkward, right? To talk about God's judgment and his wrath because people, it, it's sensitive to all of us. It's, it is an offensive message to everybody, right? We're, we're being told that we don't deserve God's grace. But listen to what he said. Again, he's an atheist. He said this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you, hate, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. If I believed, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. Richard Koken, this is his book, he goes on to say this, imagine walking out of your house and seeing Jesus standing on the other side of the road, then he yells, I love you, and throws himself under a truck. Well, that's dramatic, but you never asked him to do that. And likewise, telling an unbeliever that Jesus died to show us how much he loves us sounds emotional, but completely unnecessary. Why did he have to die? But if Jesus runs towards you yelling, I love you, to knock you out of the way of the truck that was going to flatten you, but he's killed by the truck and saving you, then you would know he died in your place because he loves you. God's wrath is that truck. And the torments of our hell are what he suffered on the cross. Now you know how much he loves you. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, the king of Nineveh said, Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will turn his fierce anger towards our sin away from us so that we may not perish. You see, the king of Nineveh wasn't sure how that worked. But we know because we live on this side of the cross. There's a children's book our, we read to our kids that says they didn't know, but we know. We know how it is that God can redirect his anger towards sin towards the moving semi-truck that is headed straight for you. We know how that can happen, and the only way is for someone else to take the punishment for you. It should have been you who experienced God's wrath. But because Jesus died in your place for you on the cross, you did not have to perish. Salvation is possible. You see, that's the message that people need to hear. 
They need to hear the good news, yes and amen. But before they realize how good it is, they have to realize how much, how bad the situation was. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. It sounds like a Christmas present, right? But do you know what that means? That he died. He gave up the life of his only son, that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The third thing we see is that we need to prepare for different responses. It says in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed God from the greatest of them to the least of them. This was a message for all people. As we share the gospel, as we deliver that message of the bad news, but the amazingly great good news, salvation is possible in Christ. We have to prepare ourselves that people are going to respond in different ways. And so Jesus, he talked about this in one of his parables He said, some aren't going to want to hear what you have to say. Some will think about it. Some will pretend to believe it. Some will fully embrace it. But the response from the people of Nineveh was truly remarkable. But the truth is, every salvation, yours and mine, every salvation is truly remarkable because none of us deserve this. This should give us great hope in our witnessing because it's ultimately up to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we don't give up. We don't be afraid. You know, how do you know, right? How, how do you know? We're, we're talking about as people respond, as we're sharing the good news of Jesus with other people. How do we know if someone's response is real? Well, ultimately, only them and God know for sure, but there will be fruit. Look at this in verse 8 again. The king said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. In other words, true repentance, true turning, right? Turning away from your sin and to Christ will be evident that you turn away from your evil ways and your sinful actions and behavior. And if you look back in verse 5, it says the people of Nineveh believed God, right? They believed God, not Jonah. They realized that their issue was with God. You see, true repentance is a turning from your action, but also that flows out of recognizing that your greatest offense is not just that you've done some bad things, it's that you've offended your own creator, the one who made you. It's against him that you've got this beef. Psalm 51 verse 4 tells us, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David was crying out to God and said, My sin affects other people, but first and foremost, God, it affects you. And that's what I don't want to lose. That's what disturbs me, is that I am separated from you, God. But our sin is secondarily against others. The gospel has an answer for that too. Lastly, number four, we should, in this blueprint of of redeeming our city, right? God working in and through us. What's the fourth thing? The last thing? We've got to be ready to engage in gospel transformation. As people do turn from their sin, as they turn to Christ, We have to engage in the transforming power of the gospel. What do we mean by that? Notice this. The king of Nineveh also asked the people to turn from their violence, he said, that's in your own hands, he said, right? You see, their sin had not only offended God, it had also corrupted their interpersonal relationships. And that's what our sin does. 
it messes up our relationships with others. But the gospel of Jesus changes people's hearts. And when your hearts change, that leads to your character transformation, which leads to behavioral transformation, which eventually leads to societal transformation. So if you want to see a city changed, you can go to the mayor's office, you can go to the city council meeting, and there may be some good in that. But if you really want to see a city come to saving knowledge of God, it's going to start in the heart. Imagine a city like that. Can you imagine a city where there's no violence and everyone puts the needs of others before their own? Seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But you know what? That city does exist. But it's not yet fully complete. It's not yet fully realized. It's the eternal city. The followers of Jesus are already citizens of, though we are living temporarily on this earth. In Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John was seeing this vision of this perfect city. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. When we go about our lives in Jacksonville, Florida, you know what we're proclaiming? As Christians, you know what we should be proclaiming? That there is another city that there is another city where there's no pain, there's no violence in our hands, there's no evil to disrupt us, to keep us awake at night, filled with anxiety and fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. Everyone loves one another and serves the needs of others before their own, and the city operates and functions beautifully, perfectly. You see, when we go about our lives here in Jacksonville, we should be giving people a glimpse of the city that is to come. You know, we may not, we may not feel a sense of urgency like the 40 days that God gave Nineveh, but we should carry a sense of urgency about this mission, not knowing how long people actually have. How will they hear? How will they believe if no one tells them? How will they see the transforming power of the gospel if we don't engage in that transformation and show them with our lives and serving their needs and showing them a glimpse of the grace and goodness of God in the holy heavenly city that is to come?
Jonah 3.10 tells us when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God sees someone repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior, he will not punish them with the wrath and judgment that they deserve because Jesus will have taken it for them and they will not perish. They will live forever in a beautiful, perfect, holy city. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the message we have. The mission may seem overwhelming, but if all of us in this room, if every single room, person in this room, if we took this seriously, man, just think about that. If we truly lived like this, wanting to show people by sharing the good news with our mouths, but showing them with our hands that we love them, that God wants to transform people's lives. If we showed them those things, and we were that witness to our neighbors and our family and our coworkers, imagine the change that we could see in this city if all of us did that. I want to close today with a time of special prayer for Jacksonville. I think it's only right. It's only proper and good for us to do that after seeing what we saw happen to Nineveh. We need to pray for the salvation of those who don't know Christ here in our own backyard. But I also want us to pray and maybe confess our own sin in this matter that maybe we have done nothing to join the mission. Maybe we have tried to put ourselves on the sidelines and we are really good at complaining about others. We're really good about complaining about the sin and the evil and the wicked we see around us. Yet, we have done nothing to show the people in our lives the glimpse of the holy city to come where people love one another as Christ has loved us.